Okay, well, good morning or afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, this is Michael Smith from AI Events. Uh, over the last uh, two and a half years during uh, uh, lockdowns and pandemics, uh, we've been carrying on creating great content uh, uh, from the industry leaders uh, and helping people connect both to that content and to the people and the companies behind them. Uh, we are carrying on in that vein. Uh, it, uh, we are now back in the real world, at, uh, slowly getting back there, but we're still producing content here online. Uh, we have had over 40,000 views uh, of a number of the webinars and content that we've produced over the last uh, two and a half years, uh, and we're going to continue to do that. Now, I'm joined by some of the industry greats and people who have been there, done that, uh, no doubt have got the T-shirts as well. Uh, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to have a bit of a conversation about what they've been up to during the, the pandemic and uh, what's coming next and to get some of those uh, wise sages views uh, of the marketplace. Uh, so I, I'm going to start off with uh, Colin Evans at, uh, from the Collinson Group. Uh, now, Colin, I know a little bit like uh, ourselves here at AI Events, uh, you've been uh, very impacted by uh, the pandemic, uh, but you've had some negative stuff and some positive stuff out of it too. So can you tell us what you've been up to over the last couple of years? Well, A is staying alive, which is a key factor. But, um, but And also, fortunately, touch wood, I haven't had COVID. But the, the key thing is, as you probably know, our business is very diverse. But at the start of COVID, we got people into airport lounges that business dropped by 90-odd percent. We also did travel insurance. So that was another one that dropped. And added to which, on the loyalty side, most of our clients were in the travel industry. So that dropped. So you couldn't have picked a more perfect storm. The, where we took advantage of it indirectly is because we knew people at the airports and we employed doctors for the travel insurance and medical assistance. We created a the first, I think the first in the UK certainly, testing area at Heathrow Airport. And then we followed that up with numerous other airports to the point I think we tested over a million people in the period that COVID was particularly active affecting travel. And out of that we also People saw us in the States and we did some work for them, which we still do for well-known businesses in the um, film and TV industry. It's highly expensive to have a famous star catch something. So it was up one level, it went down terribly, and then it's come back. The challenges of coming back here particularly in the lounges and particularly the airports, as it's very visible, we cannot get staff to qualify to go into an airport very quickly because it needs probably three or four weeks to get approval, which slows everything down. It's just frightening. But it's today Heathrow's cut more flights, which can't get staff. So the challenge is people want to travel, before they couldn't travel because of COVID. Now COVID has diminished, not eradicated, but people can't travel because you can't find staff to do it. I flew on a, a low-cost carrier flight a week ago. They could only serve sweets and drinks, no food. Is that um, 
starter. The rest of the business we kept going on different things. And so I know you had to recover. Uh, on your lounge business, you had uh, all sorts of issues there. It was frightening. You could just, as I said, you close, close, close. The airport lounges were closed nearly everywhere. And the same time, the lounges that we built um, for people's use, I think the number of contracts we got quadrupled in the period. We acquired one business as a joint venture. Another business in the Middle East, we were doing something around the sleep and fly people going to oversimplification of a room or a cubicle, spend the night, mostly in Doha and the UAE. Seems to be very surprisingly popular. Well, that's uh, it's always good to hear that uh, there are some uh, positive outcomes. So, uh, Rob, uh, you know, I gather you're coming to us uh, from here in Scotland, but. Uh, uh, how have you been seeing things at uh, points at uh, over the last uh, two and a half years? Yeah, you know, it's been it's, it's been a I think crazy is a good way to describe it. I think many of us have dealt with the same thing. I'd say, you know, one, to Colin's point, um, for the first time in my thirty plus years in travel, um, what I haven't done is traveled, uh, which has been like shocking to the system. And I think you know, for everybody on this call. We've all spent a tremendous amount of time in hotels and 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 uh, in the air, and so that that was just a that was a quite a significant change and adjustment, particularly in our industry. But just you know, operating companies and and such, um, you know, I was probably doing eighty to one hundred flights a year, and I wouldn't have been doing the most on this uh, this panel uh, likely, uh, knowing Colin. Uh, so to go from that to zero was quite a quite an adjustment, and I think that was a big adjustment for members of programs for, for the programs themselves, the airlines and the companies that we're running as well to have us kind of knuckleheads hanging around the office all the time uh, was a little bit different as well. Um, you, you know, I think we're, we're doing the, a lot of the same stuff that I, I suspect many um, companies in travel were doing. We really went through that stage of recovering from the shock of March of 2020. Like it, it was, you know, not something that uh, we ever had baked into any business plans or financial plans, you always did the downside weakness areas or potentially contemplating, you know, things going sideways, but, you know, never in anybody's wildest dream, certainly not in ours, would we have expected to see the kind of cliff that happened in 20, you know, March of 2020. We weren't down quite as much as Colin describes, but, you know, we were damn close. And as a public company being off 75% in that first quarter, you kind of hunkered down and, and had to really um, kind of reset yourself in terms of how do you how do you kind of create value and and uh, and kind of recover. So uh, you know that was a big part of 2020 was just kind of getting your foundation uh, reset. Ironically, um, because we are in that industry that was was dealing with some of the same challenges, it was very very quickly very very busy, um, which was great medicine. You know, all of our partners were, you know, in the same boat. They were looking for ways to generate revenue to, uh, you know, flying airplanes around and, and operating hotels was going to be a hard business for a while. So they really turned to the loyalty programs was our experience to see how they could actually generate economics out of these assets that were always well understood. But I don't think we're, we're ever truly weren't pre-pandemic truly understood as the machine's financial machines that they they uh, have been for some time, but certainly came to the fore 
here over the last two and a half years. So, you know, ironically, it was very busy, lots of creativity, lots of new ideas, lots of kind of partners wanting to do some things that maybe their senior management weren't quite prepared to let them do um, pre-pandemic. A lot of that kind of was, was fair game. And so as a result, it was it's been as busy a time as we've had as an organization um, uh, since our, our inception. And, you know, Joe might remember, Joe worked closely with us in the very, very early days of points. And 9-11 as another kind of traumatic period created a whole bunch of interesting new ideas. And so it, it is, you hate to look for traumatic events, but they have historically created some real interesting uh, opportunities for the programs and the membership and the businesses that they work with. So I'd say, you know, that was a bit of the ironic part. I, you know, I would say there was no economics in it. That was one of the things that was odd for us. Um, while the business was busy, it wasn't generating economics. Um, there, you know, we were building products and we were putting a lot of new stuff in the, into the market, but the membership um, early on really wasn't uh, yet recovering and and participating, and that changed in late 21. I, I, you know, it's been I, it's been amazing to see that kind of voracious, I don't know if you call it revenge travel, as people have talked about, but that kind of bounce back in late 21 for us was staggering, just how rapid people were getting back engaged with the airlines, particularly in the U.S., right? The domestic U.S. market really was humming. So, you know, the last little bit, last year or so, we've been, uh, you know, with our partners, I would say it feels like we're well ahead of pre-pandemic levels. So the acceleration out of that kind of very difficult time has been fun. It's been lots going on. And, and uh, um, you know, for us, it's been, you know, fun to try to keep up with some of these smart uh, organizations that were doing some, some, uh, some cool stuff. So I feel like we're out of it um, for the most part. I, you know, say that not trying to, to risk it, um, but it does feel like uh, the programs have, have really led the way out of the pandemic from a travel standpoint. And then for us, just personally um, at points, we just completed a transaction to, uh, after 20 years of being a public company, we've just been acquired by um, uh, a private company based out of Montreal. And so we'll be uh, continuing to operate as points, but in a private company environment and out of the public company spotlight. So that's, uh, uh, that's an exciting change for us as well. I, I, it's interesting. I, I always, it's a company called PlusGrade that uh, I believe has uh, acquired you. And uh, uh, they were one of the first people to pitch in our Lion's Den product pitching competition. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, yeah. It, uh, so they were. And, uh, um, but interestingly enough, I, I, they won. And uh, uh, one of the companies that they beat uh, is one of these companies that you've never heard of, a company called Agen. Uh, and Agen is now worth 50 billion euro. Right. right. Uh, so, it, uh, so it was a very successful, uh, it's a very successful uh, particular event there. You, uh, should, I, um, you should get those original business pitches. They're probably uh, worth something now. I have actually got them. <laughs> uh, uh, um, so I have it. Uh, I, uh, Rob, you made an interesting uh, uh, point there about uh, uh, 9-11, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, we all went through the trauma of that. And uh, you talked about how Joel had uh, helped uh, uh, the Malik Group, I presume, uh, or uh, was that at, uh, in your other incarnations at some of your no, um, it, to, to be honest, both Joe and Randy were very helpful to points in our very early days. Um, you know, and it's not surprising. I've told this story before. 
you uh, when you're trying something new and you're you're kind of um, tilling that ground that you haven't seen before, you go to look to people and, and try to find people that have some of that experience and have some of the, the, the credibility. And both Joe and Randy were very helpful to points in the very early days. Uh, and Colin came onto the scene, um, you know, within a year or two of us starting, I suspect. I think we tried to sell Colin a piece of business in the South Pacific that he was smart enough to tell us to go pound sand on. But uh, no, you, you, do, you do try to find ways to work with smart guys like this. So speaking of smart guys, uh, Joe, you've been uh, uh, semi-retired, I think, at, uh, uh, over the last uh, uh, couple of years. But uh, you know, from your viewpoint at, uh, at the Mallet Lodge, at, uh, uh, what have you been seeing over the last uh, two and a half years? Yeah, well, yeah, thanks. Um, I have been retired more or less uh, full time, but nonetheless, I do keep my eye on things. And uh, it's interesting what Rob had just said about the uh, FFPs and, and the loyalty programs in general, but in the airline industry, certainly what I've seen is, once again, as Rob pointed out, they sort of pulled the airlines through this. Um, you look at um, the, the infusion of, of loan money, something like $55 billion here in the U.S., and then 10 more for cargo and contractors. There's a lot of investment, and I dare say much of that was based on the underpinning of the, the the frequent flyer program, the frequent guest program, because of the, the monetary value that went along with that. That having been said, that kind of kept the airlines and, and hotels moving in a direction where they could potentially come back. But they were also, as I saw it, you know, kind of stuck between uh, a double prong issue of supply and demand. First of all, the, the, I won't say knee jerk, but the reaction of the airlines to cut flights and put airplanes in mothballs and retire pilots early uh, had, a, had a major impact as we go down the line and we look at what's happening today, the cancellations, they just, there aren't the, the crews, there, aren't, there isn't the equipment. Um, and then on the other side, people have been, you mentioned revenge travel earlier, but uh, there's just uh, an increase in disposable income. I saw some report from the Federal Reserve that numbers were kind of staggering, something like, I don't know, 27% increase in disposable income from uh, April of 2020 to the current period. That translates to people having money to do what they want to do. And with the, I'll say, downgrading of the COVID threat, because it's certainly not gone, but that creates increased demand you have on the other side of the coin, reduced supply. And it's, it's a problem that needs to be addressed. And then the overlay, which I think we're going to get to in a minute, is that of the whole green issue of, of climate change and, and how long can we sustain the type of industries we've been so accustomed to and how will our customers react and how as marketers do we deal with that? Uh, that's uh, uh, really interesting, Joe, that, that uh, you know, uh, you're still seeing uh, all of those bits and, uh, and lots of up-to-date statistics as well but, uh, in terms of uh, that disposable income. Uh, uh, Randy, uh, we've uh, uh, come around uh, now to uh, you. One of the bits that I, I, I love uh, on your uh, LinkedIn profile, it says that you didn't invent uh, FFP programs, but you invented the news about them. Uh, and uh, you've been uh, uh, certainly a mover and shaker over all the years uh, when it comes to uh, what's happening 
uh, in the industry. So uh, what have you seen in the last two and a half years? Well, two and a half years. Uh, you know, I come at it from a consumer point of view, from uh, from the frequent flyer to guy in the seat, if you will. And uh, I think Joe and uh, Rob and certainly Colum all touched on those things because I know all of them back in the day of what they used to do. Rob running Canadian Airlines, uh, Joe at Continental, although occasionally he, he did roller coaster rides too. And then Colin I met back in 1986. So I've kind of gone through all the things, if you will, for all these gentlemen here. And the interesting thing for me is, is I'm in the publishing business now. So uh, it's still about the news of FFPs, although differently. Back in the day, I used to write about them and write about these these gentlemen that are on this podcast as well, too. But today I see those uh, that prism through the eyes of a lot of bloggers. I run a, a portal of about 100 different bloggers. And so when I look at the last two and a half years, I look at the contrast between what I wrote about post 9-11, when travel was at a standstill and what the industry did and how did uh, the frequent flyers react, and then uh, into post-COVID and during COVID, how bloggers themselves being frequent flyers looked at that change, if you will. And of course, Joe touched on a lot of things, the idea about loans against the industry to keep the airlines afloat, if you will, just looking at El Al the other day, borrowing against their uh, FFP money to keep going, if you will. So it doesn't appear things are, are over, if you will. And of course, the other thing Joe brought up is about increase in disposable income. Today's, when they refer to revenge travel, is that Today's leisure flyer often flies 25 to 50,000 miles a year on leisure travel. So it's interesting because of the change in income that even the leisure traveler is now considered an elite status flyer. And of course, the changes we've seen is, is through the eyes of bloggers is that they just got burned out. Things happen in their personal lives. Things happen in their professional lives. The idea of not traveling, the idea of working from home is probably the biggest damper on the view of uh, FFPs these days. And of course, the airline industry kind of became their own worst enemy because like many things in any business, you gravitate towards shiny things. And one of the shiny things we've seen through COVID brought a lot of new attention to the idea of something called a status match. And today, man, I tell you, the interesting thing, and I don't know that the industry will, will regret this well into the future, but the idea is that the percentage of travelers out there who have become free agents because of such things as status matches and extensions and stuff is going to be overwhelming. And it's probably going to take well beyond five to 10 years for the industry to recover and recognize again, what does loyalty mean? And loyalty in its basis sense is about re, re, uh, reflecting the pressure to change brands and with status matches and extensions of loyalty 
that makes it really kind of easy because there's almost no pressure uh, to, against changing brands out there. So that's the, that's the big thing that I've seen out there is that the perception of now we stuff our wallets with not how many miles we have, but with how many elite statuses we have. So that's been kind of diluted in the world of loyalty, if you will. Uh, will it come back? It always comes back. Travel is one of those inspirational things that it applies to all kinds of economies. And while we go through the alphabet of generations, whether it's Y, Z, Boomer, or what have you, um, you know, the idea of it's invented new terms out there. Now we talk about the holistic approach to frequent flyers. In 1986, Colin, you never said to me the word holistic. I can tell you that. The other words that come It would have been other long words, Randy, but not <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then Joe, of course, talks about climate change. I can tell you back in the mid-90s, people were dissing the frequent flyers about, well, what about every every time you go on a mileage run you're include you're you're uh, you're exposing more carbon emissions and stuff like that so the idea of climate change and the guilt factor of of uh, of uh, the impact on doing mileage runs and things like that really hasn't changed for uh, if I say the mid 90s then that's 27 years that topic's been around and not a whole lot has been done about it uh, but uh, we'll see where that goes the rest of this conversation but there you go Oh, so I, I, that, it's fascinating. I, I'm the first uh, long haul flight I did at the uh, back end of last year uh, on a British Airbus A380. And I was chatting with uh, their uh, cabin services manager and she was telling me that it was full and first. It was full in business. It was full in premium economy. And there was nobody sitting in the economy. <laughs> and, uh, I, and she said that she had been seeing that same trend uh, over uh, a number of our flights that uh, uh, all of, uh, in quotes, the premium cabins, uh, it was almost like people were, uh, uh, you know, uh, they were just so keen to get out there that uh, uh, they were paying uh, wh wh whatever to, you know, to do that. Uh, the other thing I, I, I love there, Randy, it, uh, um, I, I probably never said to you, but uh, uh, in my past, uh, I had... Um, I was part of the team that rewrote uh, all of the BA rules and introduced BA miles. And uh, boy, did your online forum light up <laughs> once we published and put the new rules out. And we kept thinking, oh, we hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and uh, so it, uh, all of that is like uh, uh, on steroids these days with uh, all of the bloggers. Right, uh, anybody got uh, anything they, they want to I can to give you something. There's three things that made me think and Randy's Randy saying. As I said, I met Randy in Colorado Springs in 1986. And I was going around the States because I had an idea. You, if I flew to the States, I had an address in the States that I could use. So you could build miles with the U.S. carriers. And I wanted to be able to create something for people who flew outside of the States so they could get miles. This is the day of Pan Am and TWA, just to put, you know, before anybody says it, I was not born before <laughs> the war, the first war or any other war. Um, 
But meeting Randy and we came up with this idea and we created the Frequent Fire Club. And Randy produced a newsletter, which was he was already doing because he'd moved out of New York. But from that, we, you know, the rest is history of Randy and his numerous ways of doing things. And at the same period, and I can't remember the day, I was asked to go to Australia to present to Qantas Board the benefits of building a loyalty program. I got as far as the airport and the guy said, and where's your visa? I said, visa? I don't need a visa, I'm British. So I missed the Qantas Board to explain about the loyalty program. So I can, but it's, and the other one in that mix was I asked, we won the opportunity to build Thai Airways Frequent Fire Program. And we had to beat Cathay, um, uh, Singapore Airlines and uh, Malaysia. And I asked Randy to come over and present to the board of Thai. And everybody, unlike anybody today, we were sitting there in suits around this wonderful teak table. Randy appeared in the Randy style of dress. And the people started to talk about how the impact of the frequent fire program would be. And all these quiet, polite people were sitting there. And then he went, your life is changing. Bang, frequent fire programs will change your life. And everybody sort of jumped and Randy just led off. And he explained to everybody he'd only spent, I think, $150 to get there but he flown first in business class using his frequent flyer miles. Can't remember when it was, some early 90s, something like that. But it's yeah, hilarious well, watching Randy banging the table. It was a religious conversation to this. And right after that, I went to the hotel room and passed out from jet lag. So that tells you <laughs> how much of a frequent flyer I was. I was a wimp. So I, I, you, you made a little bit about uh, uh, Qantas and uh, their uh, board meeting. So Qantas, uh, uh, you know, probably would have gone under without uh, their um, coalition program that they've got at, uh, at the moment uh, uh, during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, but they're one of the first carriers out with uh, with a green and an eco uh, part uh, to their uh, program. So it uh, uh, is that the the way to go? Can you have uh, you know, can you encourage people to be flying all the time? Uh, to, so all those things Randy talked about, nobody worried about in the 90s about uh, doing mileage runs and uh, the impact on the environment and sustainability is that, uh, is what Qantas is doing in terms of having a, a green tier to their programme, is that the right approach? Does anybody want to take that up? Joe, since you brought up the sustainability yeah. bit. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, it's something that the industry certainly needs to pursue. Uh, and I've taken a look at the Qantas uh, program uh, and sort of, it, it's a little complicated, but I think it's heading in the right direction. I think you have to look at the flying audience. And I think if you look at it, there are certain segments within it. And as marketers, we need to pay attention to segments. I think there are those who are recognize the cost of sustainability and are willing to pay some. I think there's another segment, probably equally as large, who recognize it, uh, but are not willing to pay for it. They may change their behavior, perhaps. And then there's a, a smaller segment that just, it's not their problem. Uh, and, and that may skew uh, with age uh, to the older 
folks like myself who would say, you know, I've been doing this my whole life. I'm not in a position to change, uh, but I'm just going to, uh, you know, continue to do what I can and, and go down that path. That all having been said, now you have to say to yourself, how do I deal with those segments and incent them differently? And much like frequent flyer programs, and I'll concentrate on that in hotel programs as well, but have always been a way to create an airline within an airline to take some of the nightmare, if you will, out of travel um, with uh, both upgrades and, and pre-boarding and of course, column with, with clubs and lounges. Um, that perhaps is the way to look at it. And to the extent that you can encourage sustainable travel through incentives, perhaps through your program and not through the entire airline and shift uh, so much additional cost, I think that might be the answer. Um, the other thing I, I just want to mention is, is I see it, and again, I'm, I'm looking at it from a bit of a distance, the audience has changed. You know, the precious business traveler is, is there, but certainly not at the numbers that they were. On the other side of that coin, uh, the leisure travel has increased significantly for some of the reasons we discussed with disposable income, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering how the programs and the airline service in, in, in the grander scheme will be able to adjust to that. Um, maybe if, Colin, can I ask you a question? You know, I've, I've been in a couple of clubs as recently as March and uh, in Glasgow, in fact, uh, and the audience seems to have skewed much younger, shall I say. Uh, kids running around, uh, you know, parents, what, you know, it, it, it was not the classic business environment. And yet, not only your clubs, clubs in general still cater to the business traveler. Do you see any change in that, perhaps? I'm not advocating jungle gyms and seesaws in the clubs, but perhaps some sort of a, a more appealing uh, opportunity for the younger family type traveler, which seems to be on, on the upswing, uh, was, being accommodated through the systems that were designed and built for the business travel. Well, in one sense, we we're, started a joint venture on gaming. Now, that is not, I am not a classic of someone who's going to do gaming. I can, you may not believe it, but it's, you know, that's not me, but with, it's, and they, they appear very popular. They seem to be commercially successful, which I wouldn't have been aware of, but we've done it with someone who we work, who we use with Proudly Pass, and then we built a lounge in um, Charlotte with them. So that's a different thing. Again, the sleeping is different. I think we're looking at various other things. I think the, the point, of the, the fundamental problem with an airport is if you take something of 5,000 square feet, it's still 5,000 square feet at a certain price. So if you have children that you're paying for and whatever the chairs are, the thing that's changed, the challenge of, uh, I'd say this because it affects us, but the average dwell time at Heathrow was just about an hour and a half pre-COVID. Now it's comfortably over two hours. So you've got a dwell time and it's compounded by the um, airlines calling people to get there two and a half hours. I was in Dublin recently. It was over three hours. So that changes the whole dynamic 
of the airport, it changes the dynamic of crowding because everybody gets there early. And whether they're in a lounge or standing at an airport, they're standing there for nearly two hours before they get on the plane. The staffing, whether it's in a lounge, whether it's on security, whether it's in the restaurants, is probably 50 to 75% of the same, dealing with the same number of passengers. So there is the shift, but there's so many different dynamics of when you went in. Unquestionably, there is a higher ratio of holidaymakers than business travelers than it oh, was Rob's, before. Rob's wanting to uh, yeah, add something. You know, just the, it crosses my mind that, you know, the, the crux of Joe's question it, it kind of leads to, do you believe business travel is going to come back? You know, inf- you know infrastructure like airports, lounges and Collins business is, you know, that's not easy shifting stuff. Um, and so if, if, if you don't believe business travel is coming back, then you could, you know, it seems to me as a traveler and from a business perspective, you could see those models evolving. But I, I have to say, I, you know, just recently we've been getting back on the road and getting back in front of partners and, and kind of more traditional business um, uh, interactions and not, you know, no disrespect to the, the great two by two pictures on this screen. It's such a far cry from Zoom meetings uh, and just to get back out in those one-on-one or team environments where you're doing a, a deal or you're trying to innovate and you're trying to find ways to work together to, to create value. I just fundamentally, and uh, I, I just can't believe the, the fact that I don't want to commute to work anymore is going to win the day when it comes to business travel. I think, I think the first deal you lose to your competitor who jumped on a plane and went to see a, a, a customer, you know, it, it's, it's hard to imagine there won't be a return of business travel at some scale. Admittedly and clearly it's been delayed from some of the leisure recovery, but I, I just, I can't see a scenario where there's an absence of business travel, you know, in the next three years. So, I think a lot of those decisions are fundamental to whether or not you believe that's going to come back or it's not. And, you know, these airports, they're in, I mean, certainly here in Europe, it's been complete chaos. Um, Canada, uh, where I'm I'm based out of Toronto, has been a a nightmare. So, you know, thank goodness there hasn't been a ton of business travel because, you know, you, you can imagine from a customer service standpoint for the members of these loyalty programs, you know, that business class uh, or business traveler, if they were dealing with the kind of chaos that's been in place over the last little while, loyalty programs will be full-time customer service uh, uh, shops because the, you know, that, that, that flyer simply wouldn't be putting up with the kind of chaos that the system is, is forcing on us right now. One of the, the, the interesting things, Rob, uh, we had our first uh, big uh, in-person event uh, a couple of weeks ago in London, and uh, you know we can generally tell whether uh, something's going well by the noise level when people are out having uh, coffee and everything. Uh, it's the noisiest we've ever had, and uh, trying to get people back into the room uh, when the sessions were on, uh, it was uh, almost impossible. And our feedback, and and perhaps I would say this, but our feedback was more business was done because people were just so pleased to see uh, everybody uh, uh, in person. Um, 
Randy, uh, Rob made some interesting points there about those uh, business travelers. Uh, and you mentioned about it being kind of like leisure travelers now were uh, those uh, frequent flyers. Um, do you think that that's the way it's going to go? Yeah, I, I, Rob is spot on in terms of the, the impact of Zoom. I mean, it just keeps getting set back. And now we've got the, the BA.5 variant and uh, monkeypox and other things. So it's going to take some time, actually, I think, for the world to adjust. We're going to have to live with viruses one way or another. And the idea that it keeps sliding things back there'll be a point where unfortunately the population is going to get used to living in that environment. And when I say unfortunate, that's not really the case. The fortune is people will get used to that and go on with living their lives. I want to go back to something Joe said about the kids in the lounges and stuff. My guess on that is that we've seen activity that that's more of the purview of airports to build uh, the play areas, if you will, kind of like McDonald's with their play areas, if you will, more central than it is uh, the individual lounges because uh, towards Collins uh, uh, perception, and it's true, it's still 5,000 square feet, but the airport itself as an infrastructure probably has more room and more public space to build the playgrounds for entertainment. I mean, Minneapolis airport has several uh, play areas for kids and stuff like that. And interestingly enough, the reason I say that is because we've seen a lot of moves by the lounges themselves recently to curtail the types of visitors and the length of time they can stay in their lounges, the number of guests they can have. Uh, it can only be if you're flying that day on that particular airline uh, within an hour, an hour and a half of a flight and uh, those types of things. So chances are it's just the lounges themselves that the way that they govern it, if you will, access the lounges will probably prevent too many more kids from enjoying the lounges and also the idea that the airports have a better infrastructure for taking care of that. But uh, back to uh, what Rob was talking about, uh, the business, I've noticed that uh, among my bloggers that I would say 75 to 80 percent of them have resumed their life as frequent travelers versus only 10 percent a year ago. So uh, I view them. That's my own little Petri dish, if you will, of looking at how people recover, because I watch how they write, what they write about tra business travel, if you will. So it's getting there. But the problem is I see is that, you know, travel per se is a global thing. And as we look around the world and see different countries react and start to shut down against uh, some of the new variances of viruses out there, it looks to me that we're just it's just not ready yet. I, I think that uh, whoever said during COVID that business travel would take five years to start to recover. They were the smartest people because everybody else, including myself said, no, as soon as this gets over, everybody would be on a plane again. I guess we never really counted on that. It's a sustainable topic of viruses and health and issues like that. Well, wow. and, and, and just the system's ability to handle it. Like I, I think it's, and again, it may be wrong or in the minority here, but 
it's less about the risk on health right now is the sense I get in terms of dealing with colleagues. And, and, and there is this, you know, I think what's going to face or, or delay some of the recovery is, look, if you're going out and your history or your plan is to be on the road every week, traveling, you know, through the hubs like London and, and CDG and, and um, New York and others, you can't do it. Like you can't do it, uh, you know, and no shot at our friends at United, but like to go through Chicago these days in this environment as a leisure traveler is really inconvenient, right? You could end up in a hotel cancellations, et cetera. Same thing here in Frankfurt or, or London, but as a business traveler, it's untenable because you've got another meeting in another, uh, another country down the road. So I, I look, I think it's, I think Randy's right in that as these global, um, as different markets open up in different ways and react differently to the virus, that's not going to make things any easier. Um, but you, we just got to get the systems working to really get business travelers willing to get back on the road instead of getting on a Zoom. But because I can tell you, I can justify in my mind, I can uh, often justify going to London and, and squeezing in, you know, two or three meetings and you see a, a Colin and, and some of our partners, but if you can't count on getting in and getting out, and, you know, in a time frame that, that you're, you're banking on. And now all of a sudden it's a five day trip because of cancellations, et cetera. You know what? I can't justify that. I'm going back onto, onto the zoom. So look, I, it, it's not going to happen quickly. I think Randy's right on that. Um, uh, but it is, it is, I think there's a multitude of, of, of issues that we're going to have to, as an industry. I was at a conference in Dublin, let's say a month ago, and lots of people canceled at the last minute because in the news, there was three-hour delay at Heathrow and then another three hours getting out of Dublin. And there are pictures of people queuing in outside of the, the airport buildings and queuing in the, you know, the road and everywhere else. So just people just, they don't want to do it. And if you think, we used to be an hour and a half, of which 30 minutes you were walking roughly to the gate. So it left an hour. Today it's two and a half. So you've got two hours going back to lounges, that's twice as full, that's the restaurants with half the staff. It's, it's a nightmare. I, I just don't think the business traveler is going to have the patience for that. No. And so that just, they may wait a little bit longer to, you know, to the point where the system is, is flowing a little more smoothly, but we'll see. So I, I, on that, it's an interesting uh, bit for us to come to then sort of uh, where are we all going to go? Right? Uh, so where, uh, uh, you know, uh, who's going to go first with, some bold predictions or uh, how this is all going to uh, end up. It, uh, Joe, it, uh, you know, we, we all know we can come and uh, live with you because uh, you've got a tomato farm going on there and uh, <laughs> uh, you'll be able to feed us all uh, if... It's not just a tomato plant. Where he lives is remarkable. And he was showing me pictures of the bear that visits and the, I don't know, <laughs> and the big cat. A big cat in American terms that yeah. came to visit him. So it's a beautiful place to visit. Well, that's certainly a the, the restaurant is always a great place to eat and drink. <laughs> well, thank you for the compliment. Um, what do I see happening? I guess one of the things that, you know, to, to deal with this entire issue of supply, perhaps government intervention and the FAA in this country, in any case, could look at extending the the pilot life from 65 to 67 and getting some of the, the in-flight crew issues solved. 
getting some of the airplanes out of mothballs, but along with that goes the associated challenge of ground support and, and the rest of it, not only at the terminal, but throughout the airport, the tarmac, the baggage and air freight, all of it. So that, that could be one thing that I would see that would help on the supply side. And with that increase, I think you would also see some of the prices, obviously, increase supply, uh, start to drop a little. But in the meantime, the higher prices seem to be, at least as I see it, somewhat of a gauge and kind of to control that demand. But at the end of the day, we still have what we've seen and we've been talking about over and over again here, the, the unbelievable cancellations and inconvenience. And to Rob's point, the, the business traveler's inability, shall I say, to put up with that. Um, it's, it's something that I see needs to happen. I'm not sure how it's going to be dealt with. And on the uh, service side, perhaps within the tiers of the frequent flyer and frequent guest programs, there's some opportunity, but it's daunting. And I'm glad I'm in the tomato patch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Randy, you, uh, it's, uh, uh, is, that, is that going to be your next uh, venture, uh, marketing uh, uh, Joe's tomatoes? <laughs> could be, you know, <laughs> could be. I, I could not rival tomatoes, though. I tell you, getting in a <laughs> tomato fight with Joe would be disastrous for me. Uh, on, the, on the horizon, the things I see out there, and I'm surprised that the industry hasn't quickly gotten into this. But, you know, Amazon Prime is probably the most unique and successful subscription model out there. Some people may say it's Spotify or Netflix or whatever, but, you know, among the crowd that I fly with, if you will, or used to fly with, I don't know anyone who doesn't pay for Amazon Prime. So I'm looking to the future for the industry while they pretty much got the sell of miles under control, thanks to Rob and his leadership there at points. Um, interesting, you know, Rob was the smartest guy in the world because when they started that company, they didn't name it miles, they named it points. And when we look at American and other programs these days, they've changed their terminology from miles to loyalty points. So somehow Rob knew to begin with that eventually the industry would come around to his terminology. But uh, anyway, the idea of I, I see subscription based models coming up for the industry in various levels, if you will. It provides good recurring revenue, which they need that way that they can go borrow more money when they need to against other than just FFPs, if you will, because recurring revenue is really a good thing when you're talking to a bank or trying to borrow money when the next downturn comes around. But yeah, I like subscription models on the horizon. Do you think, Randy, the Emirates model is a step in that direction? Uh, it is, uh, thanks to some of your guidance and, and things like that, the, the folks out of Zurich as well. But it's the start. But, you know, Emirates and, and things that have come around for non-U.S.-based programs, somehow they don't 
carry that well. I'm looking for the U.S., somebody in the U.S., some maverick uh, marketing person, and Rob's probably close to this as well, too, with the guidance from points to come up with those programs that will provide recurring revenue. Yeah, I, 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 look, I, I agree with you. I think subscription is going to play a role. I, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know whether it gets to that critical mass of an Amazon Prime where, to your point, everybody who's in dealing with Amazon is on using Amazon Prime or that percentage has to be staggering. I, I think it's, it's hard to see subscription not playing a bigger role going forward in, in, on the frequent flyer side. And I think you're right, America's probably a little bit behind on that. I, I, I can't quite see it replacing the kind of existing model, but who knows, right? Strange, stranger things have, uh, have happened. I think one of the things you did touch on though, Randy, that I, I, I think less about knowing what the future holds, uh, Michael, but more about what's going to be driving kind of the change or what comes next. I, I've been saying this for, for a bit. You, you know, the, the fact that we were always believers, this whole crew has always been a believer in that power and strength of the loyalty programs, right? Like we wouldn't be in this business for 25, 30 years unless we, we understood it. Um, I've seen much more recognition in the last you know, four or five years and certainly accelerated through the pandemic of just how important, valuable, useful um, these programs are as economic engines. Um, and look, it's a long time ago that, you know, American and United really led the way in kind of these modern loyalty programs and generating economics and financial performance. But there's been a new level reached, you know, I think Joe talked about the the not just the revenue generated and the profitability, but the recognition of these as assets that you're now coll uh, collateralizing to the tune of what Delta did 10 billion or American did 10 billion, Delta did five to seven, United in that neighborhood. That changes everything, right? That gets the executive office, the CFO uh, and the bankers to Randy's points, looking at these businesses completely different and you know a different set of eyes that has, I think, has been really good for the leaders of the loyalty programs. You know, the people we're dealing with, again, no disrespect to Joe, uh, uh, but when I was running Canadians loyalty program and Joe Continental, the level of sophistication in the management teams today versus us back then, like speak for myself, these guys are far more capable than I was and understanding kind of proper business, building a balance sheet, you know, the profitability motives, having kind of those longer term plans, it's just a sophisticated, you know, it's a much bigger business now than it was. There are more sophisticated management teams. There's more eyes on them to kind of continue to generate value. And I think that just drives innovation and it drives a whole bunch of new ideas, whether it's subscription, the way Randy uh, has, has pointed out, or it's something else. I think we're going to see just a boatload of innovation uh, and change out of the loyalty industry travel loyalty industry in the next three to five years, because I think that just that core dynamic behind it, the expectations of the programs um, has dramatically changed. I, so I, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. Like I, I think there's going to be lots of cool stuff that comes out of it. Uh, I, I think there is a, a there's already a lot of stuff happening uh, that uh, uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, some of the stuff uh, just bubbling away. 
uh, but uh, it'll come to the surface uh, in, in due course. Uh, uh, EasyJet, Randy, on this side of the, uh, the uh, uh, pond uh, have a subscription service, um, but it, uh, uh, it, it hasn't as yet, uh, unless you know something different, Colin, uh, uh, set their uh, uh, results on fire, but uh, they certainly have uh, EasyJet Plus uh, on this side uh, of uh, the market. So Colin, your predictions that uh, you're going to be banning kids from all of your lounges, especially the one in Glasgow. <laughs> no, I wasn't saying I would ban children from the thing. I think the difference is, and the problem is in, in a, you know, going back, we were building, start to build a lounge in, I won't say where it was, in 2019, or probably start 2018. And the when it then it got stopped. When it came back, the price to build it went up 20, 24%. So it had 24%, but the time is still four years. And the problem we've had here in the last, and not just lounges, but do you think it's four years to build it? And it's probably four years to get approval to build it with the airports, et cetera, and the airlines. So it's five or six years. What's happened in the last since COVID really got back, you know, was suppressed, is a year's change. So creating change that fast is hard. You know, things move, some things move very quickly. No one was buying an electric car, then suddenly people are buying electric cars. It's, you know, if you own a diesel car, you're a pariah in the UK. So it's, but you don't buy a car for two years of change. You buy a car for five years or something. So I don't think, I think things are different. I, th I mean, I've always been involved in the subscription business for years, and it's a perfect vehicle. It's a great vehicle. It works well. But it, the problem you've got with it is if you, you take the price of an airline ticket can move from, let's say, £100 or £1,000 back again in, two weeks, trying to judge where the subscription program fits in that volatility is hard. Amazon's pricing doesn't change by the, the ratio of air, airline flights. You'd end up with so many things. You can't travel in school holidays. You can't travel when the, whatever it is, you know. Sounds like a loyalty yeah. program to me. <laughs> yeah. It is, yeah, but you don't get as much of that today, do you? So there you had it. Lots of innovation coming. Subscription seems to be the way to go. We're all going to be buying tomato futures shortly. So we're hoping for a gift. I'm looking forward to the 10 arriving. Well, they're in glass, so there's an issue. I remember seeing them, so yes, it's, I should have remembered, Joe. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, it, uh, so, gentlemen, uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, sharing your insights. At, uh, I, I think, uh, to Rob's point, uh, um, you know, there are exciting uh, and good times ahead. Uh, frankly, it probably couldn't get any worse. Uh, than it has been, and uh, uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch all of these things uh, unfold in the weeks, months, and uh, years ahead, uh, and uh, maybe we shall get together uh, in person uh, somewhere, uh, maybe at uh, next year's Freddy's, perhaps, 
and uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, take notes uh, in a year's time as to uh, uh, what has happened and uh, and how you are all very wise sages and have turned out to be right. So, gentlemen, thank you very much, and uh, I look thank forward you. to seeing you uh, in person somewhere.